uh, the things that are said in this final section of Revelation are the conclusion to the book of Revelation. But because Revelation is the final book in the New Testament, they're also the final words of the New Testament and of the whole Bible. And this has led people to suggest that these words apply not only to Revelation but to the whole of the Scriptures. We shouldn't press that too much because I doubt that that's what John was thinking when he wrote them down. Yet it is the case that what we see in this passage is true also of the whole Bible and they sum up in many ways what we could say is the whole purpose of the Bible. Well, actually a twofold purpose. To give us confidence in knowing the God who speaks, who's made himself clearly known and knowable in his word. So we can trust implicitly what he says. And secondly, to give us confidence in the person of his son Jesus, who himself is the full and complete revelation of God, the one of whom all the scriptures speak, whom all the scriptures magnify. And so we can implicitly trust him. This final section contains ten statements. The first five are statements of the realities of this word of prophecy and the word of God in total. And the last five are invitations from Jesus himself to come and put our faith in him. So firstly, five realities about this word of prophecy. Firstly, the trustworthiness of these words in verse 6. The angel says, this prophecy is trustworthy or faithful and true. This is exactly the same phrase that's used in 19 verse 11. The rider on the white horse who is called faithful and true. Exactly the same words. What makes these words then trustworthy and true isn't that they have just an inbuilt quality in and of themselves, but because they are spoken by the one himself who is trustworthy and true. We have many voices today telling us that what they have to say to us is true and worth believing. A doctor I know of, you might be able to guess who it is, speaks of how he has patients come to him who have already Googled their condition and they've been told in an article somewhere what their problem is and what they need to do and so they just come and say, just write me a prescription for this. Instead of thinking, my doctor, on the basis of all the training and years of experience, is a trustworthy and true person who can tell me about my condition and what the solution is. Instead, they've, they've put their trust in someone else to tell them the truth, who claims to speak the truth. But the, the trustworthiness of those voices can't be tested beyond the fact that they themselves claim to be speaking the truth. Well, we can, we can do the same with God's word. 
We listen to all the convincing voices coming from every direction and we believe their narrative based on the emotional power of communication or because they shout louder than all the other voices or they're simply saying something that deep down are sinful, selfish, fleshly desires wants to believe and to be affirmed in. Then when we come to the word of God, which cuts across what we've been hearing, all that truth, his word is confronting and convicting, but we find ways to dismiss it or to twist it around to say something it's not actually saying, to make it look like it's supporting what we've already decided is true. James 1.23 says, Hearing God's word, though, is like looking into a mirror because it shows us what we truly are, warts and all. Hebrews 4.12 tells us that the word of God is sharper than a two-edged sword because it pierces into the soul and discerns the thoughts and intentions of the heart and it exposes us to God to whom we must give account. 2 Timothy 3 tells us that scripture is breathed out by God and therefore it teaches and rebukes and corrects and trains in righteousness and equips us for good works. We've been trained by the world to respond to God when he speaks by saying, really? Prove it. Instead of saying, I know the one who speaks. He's shown his faithfulness, his trustworthiness in all that he's done, most supremely in demonstrating his love for me in that when I was still a sinner, Christ died for me. So I trust and believe his words because I can trust and believe him. Secondly, we see the blessedness of these words in verse 7. Psalm 1 begins, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. Throughout the Bible, blessedness is linked to hearing and knowing the word of God. Israel were promised that they would be blessed in the land if they obeyed the words of the law given to them by the Lord. Jesus pronounced nine blessings or beatitudes before going on to expound the law and to call people to build their lives on his words by hearing and doing. To be blessed is to have the full measure of God's goodness bestowed upon you. So Jesus defined blessing in those Beatitudes as possessing the kingdom of heaven, being comforted, inheriting the earth, being satisfied, receiving mercy, seeing God, 
being a child of God. It's no small thing to be blessed. And this blessing comes to us through the word of God. To keep the words of the prophecy of the book means essentially the same as Psalm 1 verses 1 and 2. To find delight in his word. To meditate on it day and night. It's not a simplistic, Jesus, just tell me what to do and I'll go and do it, without any sense of a relationship with the God who speaks to us. Delight and constant meditation requires a relationship with God and it's the action of delighting and meditating that cultivate and deepen that relationship. We're to take the word we're to hold on to it like a child holding on to a security blanket or toy, to consume it like a hungry person eats or a thirsty person drinks, knowing that God's word is our very life. To be blessed by keeping God's word doesn't mean following instructions so that we can secure a blessing, as if God was a cosmic vending machine and we, if we push the right buttons we'll get something from him. No, the blessedness is the word itself because the blessing that God's word gives us is himself. We cannot live without his word because we cannot know him apart from his word as he speaks. Even after 35 sermons on the book of Revelation. You may still feel confused or overwhelmed or in the dark when you read it. And I pray that this series has in some uh, sense helped you to gain more insight and to appreciate it more. But the secret to knowing and understanding and loving this book isn't just to have a preacher simplify and explain it to you but to keep reading, reflecting on it, meditating on it, asking questions about it, holding it up to other parts of the scriptures for insight as we've been doing and most importantly, seeking to see Jesus in every word of it. That's what we must do with every book of the Bible, seeing it as our staple diet, not just for our Christian faith, but for all of life. So keep, delight, meditate on Jesus' words and you will be blessed. Thirdly, we see the worship-inducing power of these words, verses 8 and 9. Now you think that John would have learned from the first time he made the mistake of falling down to worship an angel. He did so back in chapter 19 and he was given virtually the same rebuke. Here he's told, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. An angel is a messenger, which is literally what the word angel means. This makes angels fellow servants 
with anyone else who is a messenger of God's word. Your brothers, the prophets, that refers to the prophets who spoke and who wrote the scriptures and then those who keep these words are those who, like us, are called to keep speaking. Not our own words, but the words of God as we have been given them from the prophets. Both the prophets and we, like the angel, are mere messengers, pointing not to ourselves but to God for his glory. So flee as fast as you can from any so-called preacher or prophet who spends more time talking about themselves and their experiences and their mighty deeds than they do on expounding and teaching the scriptures. They do that because ultimately they want your worship for you to focus on them so that they can feel important. Now aside from this rebuke from the angel, we need to see why though John instinctively fell down to worship. I don't think it was because he was an idolater at heart who thought it was okay to worship an angel. It was because the things shown and told him by the angel were so glorious that he recognised in them the glory of God. And when everyone, when anyone comes face to face with the glory of God, the first response is to fall down and worship. So it's not the act of worship that was wrong, it was just that in the face of such glory, maybe John had thought that this angel that was speaking to him maybe was actually Jesus himself, the angel of the Lord that we see in the Old Testament who would often speak as if he was the Lord himself and who I believe was actually a pre-incarnate manifestation of God the Son. So putting John's mistake aside, we should expect God's word and this book to inspire genuine worship of Jesus who makes himself known to us in it. Delight in meditation on God's word should lead us to delight in and meditation on God himself to worship him. One sign that we may not have this confidence in God's word to lead us to worship is when we so easily and so often we add other tools and other means to try and inspire our worship and we depend on those things instead of the power of the word. Two examples, they might be music thinking that the instrumental music or singing can somehow make God's presence come or as some have called it, shift the atmosphere. Or it may be images. If you listen to worship music on YouTube, you've probably noticed that a lot of the videos have images or videos of landscapes and nature in the background, almost as if the words aren't enough and need to be supplemented by inspirational pictures. 
There was a good reason why God forbade the use of images in Israel's worship because we will always face the temptation to find in created things that which we can only find in God. So if we, if we struggle to have confidence in God's word as sufficient, then we'll supplement it with other things, with easier things, thinking that we're enhancing the word when in fact we're, we're really taking away from it. The biblical pattern of worship is very simple. God makes himself known to us through his word and in response to that revelation of his glory we fall at his feet and worship him. So if you want to be a true worshipper of the Father in spirit and in truth then tune your ears in and listen to his word. The worship that follows may not feel spectacular, it may not give you an emotional buzz, but it will issue forth in a life of worship that will be for his glory, where worship won't just be a couple of hours in church, but will be expressed in everything that you do. Fourthly, the living power of these words, verses 10 to 12. Now when Daniel had his visions... He was told, go your way Daniel, for the words are shut up and sealed until the time of the end. Many shall purify themselves and make themselves white and be refined, but the wicked shall act wickedly and none of the wicked shall understand, but those who are wise shall understand. What Daniel saw wasn't for his time and so the prophecies were sealed until the time that they did apply. Now that the last days have arrived in Jesus, Daniel's prophecies have been unsealed and that's what we've been seeing in the book of Revelation. We are in the time of the end. We have been since the first coming of Jesus. The time is near there isn't actually referring to Jesus' return but to this reality that the kingdom of God has come in Jesus and the end of the ages has come and the final pieces of the puzzle are being put into place. So because this is the case, John, unlike Daniel, is told not to seal this prophecy because they're all directly relevant to us today. What that means is we can be confident that he is still working through his word, that his word still has power to accomplish what he sends it to do. This comes out in verse 11. When the word of God comes to a person, it never falls to the ground without doing something. Either the work of saving or the work of judgment. When we hear the gospel and believe, it is to us a word of salvation. But if we reject it, it becomes to us a word of judgment. Daniel told us that in the time of the end, when his prophecies are unsealed, many shall purify themselves 
but the wicked shall act wickedly. None of the wicked shall understand, but the wise will understand. And that's what uh, is being conveyed here in this verse. God's word divides between the wicked and the righteous. It condemns our unrighteousness and shows our need for a saviour and it brings us the sweet good news that the free gift of righteousness is available through Jesus Christ. Right now, by faith, we may move from being one whom the word word condemns to one whom the word declares righteous. But the time will come when that division will be set, when the sheep and the goats are separated at Jesus' coming. So make sure now that you have received the free gift of righteousness from Jesus by repenting and believing because there's a deadline after which the, the offer will no longer apply. Second Corinthians 6.2 says, the Lord says, in a favourable time I listened to you and in a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favourable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. So that deadline is there in verse 12, the day that Jesus comes again. That word soon, I am coming soon, is better translated quickly or suddenly. The first generation of Christians had to be ready in case Jesus returned in their lifetime. And so too we need to be ready because when he comes there will be no prior warning. We won't hear that he's on his way and have a few hours or minutes or days to get things in order. So be ready now so that you will be ready then. Fourthly, we see the person who embodies these words. Verse 13. If you want a Bible verse that shows that Jesus isn't just a mere man but the eternal God, uh, this is one of the clearest. In one, chapter 1 verse 8, we saw, heard God himself say, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Here Jesus claims for himself that which can only be said of God. Alpha is the first letter in the Greek alphabet and Omega is the last. And this phrase means he's not only the first and the last but he covers every letter in between. And this title, Alpha and Omega, is unique to Christianity. The first record we have historically of it being used is here in Revelation. In the Old Testament, God is called the first and the last in reference to his absolute sovereignty over time and space. But there's a significance here in using Alpha and Omega because Jesus is the Word made flesh. Words are made up of letters from the alphabet. He is the one not only absolutely sovereign over all communication, but he himself is the perfect 
communication of God to us. So if you want to hear God speak, listen to Jesus. If you want to see the Father, look at Jesus. If you want knowledge and wisdom and insight, the only source you'll find it is Jesus. You can trust the word of God as trustworthy and true, not only because Jesus speaks, but because he is the word. You can't know ultimate truth unless you know him. So what follows from these five statements about God's word are declarations of Jesus as the one true living God and five invitations from Jesus. Now, different modern English versions put quotation marks in different places in this passage. In the original Greek, there were no quotation marks. I believe we should take all of these final statements, apart from that final benediction, as coming from the mouth of Jesus. And that's fitting, isn't it? That the Alpha and Omega has the final word in the book that he's given us. So the first invitation is, wash your robes so that you may eat from the tree of life and enter the city, verses 14 to 15. Now we've already seen the only way to wash our robes is in the blood of the Lamb, 7 verse 14. These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. There's only one condition that needs to be met for us to have the right to enter the city and eat the tree of life, to have washed robes. Or to put it another way, There's only one way to be included in the people of God and to receive eternal life, to have your sins removed by the atoning death of Jesus. Make sure that he is the only one in whom you're placing your hope, that you're not depending on anything or anyone else, least of all your own righteousness because that's like filthy rags. If you look anywhere else but to him, you won't, you won't know that blessed assurance that will enable you to live for him now. So Jesus himself tells us, wash your robes, receive the righteousness won at Calvary. Secondly, we're told, listen to my testimony, verse 16. Someone turns up at your door and tells you they have a very important message for you on behalf of the king. It's a, mass, it's a message that is a matter of life and death. Well, you may not believe them unless they show you some kind of identification or authorization that they are actually a mouthpiece of the king. Well, Jesus gives this authorization here by stating again who he is. He's both the root and the offspring or descendant of David. Not only is he the promised king, the offspring in the line of King David, but he's also the originator. He's the root who created and appointed David in the first place. 
For when David said in Psalm 110, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool, he was saying that there was one before him who was greater than him, who was his Lord, to whom the Lord Yahweh had promised to make king over all. So David knew, he saw, he trusted in Jesus a thousand years before Jesus was born. He also tells us he's the bright morning star, another picture from the Old Testament and the reason why today Israeli flags bear a star, the star of David. So Jesus declares himself to be this all-powerful king of the Old Testament promises. These words come with his stamp of authority, his signature. They're not just words about Jesus, they are his very words. We must listen to him and we ignore him at our peril. Thirdly, he says, come and drink and bring others with you. Among all the things that the Holy Spirit does, the key role he plays in the world today is to bring people to Jesus. And he does this by working in our hearts to draw us to come and drink the living water that Jesus offers. But see the means by which he does it. The instruments he uses is his people, the bride. He places in our hearts a longing to come to Jesus so that we can only come to Jesus by the power of the Spirit. But he also places in us a courage and a conviction to extend that invitation to others, to call all who are thirsty to come and drink from the spring from which we drink. So we can only proclaim the gospel by the power of the Holy Spirit. What a privilege it is to be able to call the thirsty to drink for free from the river of life that flows from Jesus' heart. Often I think the posture of the church towards the world can be one that communicates stay away. We we rightly need to strive to be God's holy people. We need to be distinct and different from the world, not allow the world's agenda to shape us or to lead us from the gospel. But we nevertheless, we need to have a confidence in the power of the gospel and have a posture of welcoming towards the world, one that says, come and drink from the water of life. Jesus himself tells us, if we truly believe the Holy Spirit is working among us, we'll also be willing to speak the gospel in the power and enabling that he gives. Fourthly, he tells us, do not add or take away from my words, verses 18 and 19. It's a solemn warning. If Jesus' words are trustworthy and true, then we need no other word. I mentioned earlier the fact that Revelation is the last book in the Bible in terms of its location in the book itself. It was also the last book to be added to the New Testament canon in terms of time 
So with the closing words of Revelation, we have the closing words of the Scriptures and the Bible is complete. So be wary of anyone today, as I've said, who claims to be a prophet and who brings new or extra words from God that aren't in the Bible. It's happening more and more today and many people are being led away from reading and studying and meditating on the Bible and into listening to the latest prophetic words which sound more like the daily horoscope than they do the word of the Lord. It's a serious thing to claim that the word of God isn't sufficient and so we need to add to it or that parts of it are no longer needed so we can remove them or ignore them. Jesus himself tells us his word is perfect, it's complete. He's told us exactly what we need to hear in order to know him and to have the hope of eternal life. No more and no less. We can trust it, all of it. Finally, she says, look and be ready for my coming, verse 20. Jesus' final word to us. It is to long for his coming, to cry for his coming. Come, Lord Jesus, is essentially our expression of that line from the Lord's Prayer, your kingdom come. We can rest on his promise that he will come to make the kingdoms of this world his kingdom. Imagine what our lives would be like if this was the slogan for life. If we were reminded every morning before we got out of bed that Jesus has promised to come and that cry of our hearts for him to come will shape the way that we live today as a people of hope. Let's pray.